This summer, when the sun's down, turn up the fun at Cedar Point Nights. The ultimate after-dark beach party is every night from July 29th through August 21st. Dance with throwback DJ sets, challenge your friends with beach games, or just take it easy at fire pits lining Cedar Point's legendary mile-long beach. Then enjoy the new Lake Erie Luau, a food experience like no other. For a limited time, get park admission, luau tastings, and parking for just $69.99. Only at cedarpoint.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease. And on today's episode, we begin season eight with John Dillinger. All new this season, we're diving into the life and crimes of the mob and the mafia. So stick around and we'll dive right into John Dillinger. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Poddex, for sponsoring this episode. You're looking to grow your audience and reach new engagement? Then check out poddex.com. Use the promo code Larry21 for 10% off your order. And Audible. Audible subscription service that allows you to buy audiobooks that you can listen to from anywhere. Audible allows you to choose from a gigantic array of audiobooks narrated by amazing narrators. Right now, I'm listening to The Dead Zone by Stephen King, narrated by Oscar-winning actor James Franco. It's the chilling story of a high school teacher who falls into a coma and wakes up with psychic abilities. In all seriousness, audiobooks are great for when you're alone and maybe want to stop with the YouTube. So let me ask you this. Do you want a free audiobook of your choice? No purchase necessary? And from any kind of book, from bestsellers to true crime to romance, action adventure, any kind of book? Well, then head on over to audibletrial.com slash Larry21 and get your free book today. And of course, we'd like to remind you, you can be a part of the show and send us a voicemail. 682-305-0483. Leave us a comment on... Uh, if th- we got anything wrong, let us know, or leave a comment about the case we just covered. And now, without further ado, on to 
the season eight premiere of John Dillinger. John Dillinger was an American gangster during the Great Depression. He led the Dillinger gang, which was accused of robbing 24 banks and four police stations. Dillinger was imprisoned several times and escaped twice. He was charged with, but not convicted of, the murder of an East Chicago, Indiana police officer who shot Dillinger in his bulletproof vest during a shootout. It was the only time Dillinger was charged with homicide. Dillinger courted publicly. The media ran exaggerated accounts of his bravado and colorful personality and cast him as a Robin Hood. In response, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the Bureau of Investigation, later turned into the Federal Bureau of Investigation, used Dillinger as a campaign platform to evolve the Bureau, evolve the Bureau of Investigation, developing more sophisticated investigative techniques as weapons against organized crime. After evading police in four states for almost a year, Dillinger was wounded and went to his father's home to recover. He returned to Chicago in July 1934 and sought refuge in a brothel owned by Anna... I'm not even going to try to say her last name, so it'll be Anna C., who later informed authorities of his whereabouts. On July 22, 1934, local and federal law enforcement officers closed in on the Biograph Theater. When agents moved to arrest Dillinger as he exited the theater, he tried to flee. He was shot in the back, and the deadly shot was ruled justifiable homicide. John Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903, at 2053 Cooper Street, Indianapolis, Indiana. The youngest of two children born to John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Lancaster. John's Dill John Dillinger's parents had married on August 23, 1887. Dillinger's father was a grocer by trade and reportedly a harsh man. In an interview with reporters, Dillinger said that he was firm in his discipline and believed in the adage, spare the rod and spoil a child. Dillinger's older sister, Audrey, was born in 1889 and the mother died in 1907, just before his fourth birthday. Audrey married Emmett Fred Hancock that year and had seven children. She cared for her brother John for several years until her father remarried in 1912. As a teenager, Dillinger was frequently in trouble for fighting and petty theft. He was also noted for his bewildering personality and bullying with smaller children. He quit school to work in an Indianapolis machine shop. His father feared that the city was corrupting his son, prompting him to move the family to Mooresville, Indiana. Dillinger's wild and rebellious behavior was unchanged despite his new rural life. In 1922, he was arrested for auto theft and his relationship with his father deteriorated. In 1923, Dillinger's troubles led him to enlisting in the U.S. Navy, where he was a petty officer, third-class machinery repairman, assigned aboard the battleship USS Utah but he deserted a few months later when his ship was docked in Boston. He was eventually dishonorably discharged some months later. Dillinger returned to Mooresville where he met Beryl Ethel Hovius. The two married on April 12, 1924. He attempted to settle down, but he had difficulty. Unable to find a job, he began planning a robbery with his friend Ed Singleton, who was an ex-convict, surprise, surprise, the two robbed a local grocery store, stealing $50. While leaving the scene, the criminals were spotted by a minister who recognized the men and reported them to police. 
During the robbery, Dillinger had struck a victim on the head with a machine bolt wrapped in a cloth and had also carried a gun, which, although it discharged, hit no one. The two men were arrested the next day. Singleton pleaded not guilty, but after Dillinger's father discussed the matter with Morgan County Prosecutor Omar O'Hara, his father convinced Dillinger to confess to the crime and plead guilty without retaining a defense attorney. Dillinger was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. He expected a lenient probation sentence as a result of his father's discussion, but instead was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison for his crimes. His father told reporters he regretted his advice and was appalled by the sentence. He pleaded with the judge to shorten the sentence, but with no success. En route to Mooresville to testify against Singleton, Dillinger briefly escaped his captors, but was apprehended within a few minutes. Singleton had a change of venue and was sentenced to jail term of 2 to 14 years. He later died September 2, 1937. Incarcerated at Indiana Reformatory in Indiana State Prison from 1924 to 1933, Dillinger began to become embroiled in a criminal lifestyle. Upon being admitted to prison, he was quoted as saying, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. His physical examination of prison showed that he had gonorrhea and the treatment for the condition was extremely painful. He became embittered against society because of his long prison sentence and befriended other criminals, including seasoned bank robbers, Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter, who taught Dillinger how to be a successful criminal. The, the men planned heists that they would commit soon after they were released. Dillinger also studied Herman Lamb's meticulous bank robbing system and used it extensively throughout his criminal career. Dillinger's father launched a campaign to have him released and was able to obtain 188 signatures on a petition. On May 10, 1933, after serving nine and a half years, Dillinger was paroled. Released at the height of the Great Depression, Dillinger was with little prospect of finding employment and immediately returned to crime. On June 21, 1933, he robbed his first bank, stealing $10,000 from the new Carlisle National Bank. On August 14th, Dillinger robbed a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. Tracked by police from Dayton, Ohio, he was captured and later transferred to the Allen County Jail in Lima to be indicted in connection to the Bluffton robbery. After searching him before putting him in prison, the police discovered a document which appeared to be a prison escape plan. They demanded Dillinger tell them what the document meant, but he refused. Earlier, while in prison, Dillinger had helped conceive a plan to escape or to enable the escape of Peter P Pierpont, Russell Clark, and six others that he met in prison, most of whom who worked in the prison laundry. Dillinger had friends smuggle guns into their cells, which they used to escape four days after Dillinger's capture. The group that formed up, known as the First Dillinger Gang, consisted of Pierpont, Clark, Charles Makeley, Ed Schaus, Harry Copeland, and John Hamilton, a member of the Herman Lamb Gang. Pierpont, Clark, and Makeley arrived in Lima on October 12, 1933, where they impersonated Indiana State Police officers, claiming they had come to extradite Dillinger to Indiana. When the sheriff asked for their credentials, 
Pierpont shot Starbird dead, then released Dillinger from his cell. The four men escaped back to Indiana, where they joined the rest of the gang. Evelyn Frechette met John Dillinger in October 1933, and they began a relationship in November 1933. After Dillinger's death, Billy was offered money for her story and wrote a memoir for the Chicago Herald and Examiner in August 1934. And now we're going to talk about the escape from Crown Point, Indiana. On January 25th, 1934, Dillinger and his gang were captured in Tucson, Arizona. He was extradited to Indiana and escorted back by Matt Leach, the chief of the Indiana State Police. Dillinger was taken to the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, and imprisoned to face charges for the murder of a policeman who was killed during a Dillinger gang bank robbery in East Chicago, Indiana, on January 15, 1934. The local police boasted to area newspapers that the jail was escape-proof. And from what I've seen so far in history, there's no such thing as an escape-proof prison. They even posted extra guards as a precaution. However, come to find out, on March 3rd, 1934, prison wasn't escape-proof. Dillinger was able to escape during morning exercises with 15 other inmates. Dillinger produced a pistol, catching deputies and guards by surprise and he was able to leave the premises without firing a shot. Almost immediately afterwards, conjecture began whether the gun Dillinger displayed was real or not. According to Deputy Ernest Blunk, Dillinger had escaped using a real pistol. FBI files, on the other hand, indicate that Dillinger used a carved fake pistol. Sam Cahoon, a trustee who Dillinger took hostage in the jail, also believed Dillinger had carved the gun, using a razor and some shelving in his cell. In another version, according to an unpublished interview with Dillinger's attorney, investigator Art O'Leary claimed to have sneaked the gun in himself. On March 16th, Herbert Youngblood, who escaped from Crown Point alongside Dillinger, was shot dead by police in Port Huron, Michigan. Deputy Sheriff Charles Cavanaugh was mortally wounded in the battle and later died. Before he died, Youngblood told officers Dillinger was in the neighborhood of Port Huron, and immediately officers began a search for the escaped man, but no traces of him were found. An Indiana newspaper reported that Youngblood later retracted the story and said he did not know where Dillinger was at the time, as he had parted with him soon after their escape. Dillinger was indicted by a grand jury in the Bureau of Investigation, like we said, a precursor of the FBI, organized a nationwide manhunt for him just after or just hours after his escape from the county jail dillinger reunited with his girlfriend evelyn billy Frechette. according to her testimony dillinger stayed with her for almost two weeks however the two had actually traveled to the twin cities and taking lodgings at the santa monica apartments minneapolis minnesota where they stayed for 15 days dillinger then met john red hamilton and the two mustered a new gang consisting of Babyface, Babyface Nelson's gang, including Nelson, Homer Van Meter, Tommy Carroll, and Eddie Green. Three days after Dillinger's escape from Crown Point, the second gang robbed a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A week later, they robbed First National Bank in Mason City, Iowa. And now we're going to take a look 
closer look at the Lincoln Court apartments. On Tuesday, March 20th, 1934, Dillinger and Frechette moved into the Lincoln Court apartments in St. Paul, Minnesota, using the aliases Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman. Daisy Coffey, the landlord, testified at the trial she spent most evenings during Dillinger's stay observing what was happening. On March 30th, Coffey went to the FBI's St. Paul field office to file a report, including information about the couple's new Hudson sedan parked in the garage behind the apartments. As a result of Coffey's tip, the building was placed under surveillance by two agents, Rufus Coulter and Rusty Knowles. That night, but they saw nothing unusual, mainly because the blinds were drawn. The next morning, at approximately 10.15 a.m., Agent Knowles circled around the block looking for the Hudson, but observed nothing. He parked first on Lincoln Avenue, then on the west side of Lexington Avenue at the northwest corner of Lexington and Lincoln, and remained in his car while watching Coulter and St. Paul Police Detective Henry Cummings pull up, park, and enter the building. Ten minutes later, by Knowles' estimate, Van Meter parked at Green Ford on the north side of the apartment building. Meanwhile, Coulter and Cummings knocked on the door of apartment 303. Frechette answered, opened the door two to three inches. She said she was not dressed and to come back. Coulter told they would they would wait. After waiting two to three minutes, Coulter went to the basement, apart, basement apartment of the caretakers, Lewis and Margaret Maidlinger, and asked to use the phone to call the bureau. He quickly returned to Cummings, and the two of them waited for Frechette to open the door. Van Meter then appeared in the hall and asked Coulter if his name was Johnson. Coulter said it was not. As Van Meter passed on to the landing of the third floor, Coulter asked him for a name. Van Meter replied, I am a soap salesman. Asked where his samples were. Van Meter said they were in his car. Coulter asked if he had any credentials. Van Meter said no and continued down the stairs. Coulter waited 10 to 20 seconds, then followed Van Meter. As Coulter got to the lobby on the ground, Van Meter opened fire on him. Coulter hastily fled outside, chased by Van Meter. Van Meter ran back into the front entrance. Recognizing Van Meter, Knowles pointed out the Ford to Coulter and told him to disable it. Coulter shot out the rear left tire. While Coulter stayed with Van Meter's Ford, Knowles went to the corner drugstore and called the local police. Then called the Bureau of St. Paul office, but could not get through because the lines were busy. Van Meter Meter, meanwhile, escaped by hopping on a passing coal truck. Dillinger's girlfriend, in her harboring trial testimony, said that she told Dillinger that the police had shown up after speaking to Cummings. Upon hearing Van Meter's firing at Coulter, Dillinger opened fire through the door with a Thompson submachine gun, sending Cummings scrambling for cover. Dillinger then stepped out and fired another burst at Cummings. Cummings shot back with a revolver, but quickly ran out of ammunition. He hit Dillinger in the left calf with one of his five shots. He then hastily retreated down the stairs to the front entrance. Once Cummings retreated, Dillinger and his girlfriend hurried down the stairs, exiting through the back door and drove away in the Hudson. After the shootout, Dillinger and his girlfriend drove to Eddie Green's apartment in Minneapolis. Green called his associate, Dr. Clayton E. May, his office at 712 Masonic Temple in downtown Minneapolis. With Green, his wife Beth, and Frechette following in Green's car, the doctor drove Dillinger to an apartment belonging to Augusta Salt, 
who had been providing nursing services in a bed for May's illicit patients for several years. Patients he could not risk seeing at his regular office. May treated Dillinger's wounds with antiseptics. Green visited Dillinger on Monday, April 2nd, just hours before Green was mortally wounded by the FBI in St. Paul. Dillinger convalesced at Dr. May's for five days until Wednesday, April 4th. Dr. May was promised $500 for his services, but received nothing. Now, before we move on to even the return to Mooresville, we'd like to remind you, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support will help this channel grow, upgrade our equipment, be able to bring in new hosts, pay them, create new content, even better content, create new shows, and take this show on the road. We would really love to be able to afford the uh, live stream episodes from true crime locations such as uh, in California, New York, other parts of Texas, uh, Chicago, and your support can help make that happen. After the events in Minneapolis, Dillinger and Frechette traveled to Mooresville to visit Dillinger's father. Friday, April 6, 1934, was spent contacting family members, particularly his half-brother, Hubert Dillinger. On April 6, Hubert and Dillinger left Mooresville at about 8 p.m. and proceeded to Leipzig, Ohio, to see Joseph and Lena Pierpont, parents of Prohibition-era gangster Harry Pierpont. The parents were not home, so the two headed back to Mooresville around midnight. On April 7th, at approximately 3.30 a.m., they rammed a car driven by Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Manning near Noblesville, Indiana. After Hubert fell asleep behind the wheel, they crashed through a farm fence and about 200 feet into the woods. Both men made it back to the Mooresville farm. Swarms of police showed up at the accident scene within hours. Found in the car were maps a machine gun magazine, a length of rope, and a bullwhip. According to Hubert, his brother planned to pay a visit with a bullwhip to his former one-armed shyster lawyer at Crown Point, Joseph Ryan, who had run off with his retainer after being replaced by Louis, Louis Piquet. At about 10.30 a.m. on April 7th, Billy Hubert, Hubert's wife, purchased the black four-door Ford V8, registering it in the name of Mrs. Fred Penfield. At 2.30 p.m., Billy and Hubert picked up the V8 and returned to Mooresville. On Sunday, April 8th, the Dillingers enjoyed a family picnic while the FBI had the farm under surveillance nearby. Later in the afternoon, suspecting they were being watched, agents J.L. Garrity and T.J. Donahan were cruising in the vicinity in their car. The group left in separate cars. Billy drove the new Ford V8 with two of Dillinger's nieces, Mary Hancock in the front seat, and Alberta Hancock in the back. Dillinger was on the floor of the car. He was later seen, but not recognized by the two agents. Eventually, Norman, driving the V8, proceeded with Dillinger and Billy to Chicago, where they separated from Norman. The following afternoon, Monday, April 9th, Dillinger had an appointment at a tavern at 416 North State Street. Sensing trouble, 
Billy went in first. She was promptly arrested by agents, but refused to reveal Dillinger's whereabouts. Dillinger was waiting in his car outside the tavern and then drove off unnoticed. The two never saw each other again. Dillinger reportedly became despondent after Billy was arrested. The other gang members tried to talk him out of rescuing her, but Van Meter encouraged him by saying that he knew where they could find bulletproof vests. That Friday morning, late at night, Dillinger and Van Meter took a hostage. Warsaw, Indiana police officer Judd Pittinger. They marched Pittinger at gunpoint into the police station, where they stole several more guns and bulletproof vests. After separating, Dillinger picked up Hamilton, who was recovering from the Mason City robbery. The two then traveled to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where they visited Hamilton's sister, Anna Steve. The Bureau received a call Sunday morning, April 22nd, that John Dillinger and several of his Confederates were hiding out at a small vacation lodge called Little Bohemia near present-day Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin. Special agent in charge, Melvin Purvis, and several Bureau of Investigation agents approached the lodge when three men exited the building and began to drive off. Agents yelled for the car to stop, but the driver did not hear the agents. Agents opened fire, and the driver was killed. Dillinger and some of the gang were upstairs in the lodge and began shooting out the windows. While the BOI agents stuck for cover, Dillinger and his men got out the back and fled. By July 1934, Dillinger had dropped completely out of sight, and the federal agents had no solid leads to follow. He had, in effect, drifted into Chicago, where he went under the alias of Jimmy Lawrence a petty criminal from Wisconsin who bore a close resemblance to Dillinger. Working as a clerk, Dillinger found that in a large metropolis like Chicago, he was able to lead an anonymous existence for a while. What he did not realize was that he was the center of the federal agent's dragnet, happened to be Chicago. When the authorities found Dillinger's blood-spattered getaway car on the Chicago side street, they were positive he was in the city. According to Art O'Leary, as early as March 1934, Dillinger expressed an interest in plastic surgery and asked O'Leary to check with Pickwit on such matters. At the end of April, Pickett paid a visit to his old friend, Dr. Wilhelm Lozer. Lozer had practiced in Chicago for 27 years before being convicted under the Harrison Narcotic Act in 1931. He was sentenced to three years at Leavenworth, but was paroled early on December 7, 1932. He later testified that he performed facial surgery on himself and obliterated the fingerprint impressions on the tips of his fingers by the application of a caustic soda preparation. Pickett said Dillinger would have to pay $5,000 for the plastic surgery. $4,400 split between Pickett, Lozer, and O'Leary, and $600 to Dr. Harold Cassidy who would administer the anesthetic. The procedure would take place at the home of Pickett's longtime friend, 67-year-old James Probasco, at the end of May. On May 28th, Lozer was picked up at his home at 7.30 p.m. by O'Leary and Cassidy. The three of them drove to Probasco's place. Dillinger chose to have a general anesthetic. Cassidy administered an overdose of ether, which caused Dillinger to suffocate. 
He began to turn blue and stop breathing. Lozer pulled Dillinger's tongue out of his mouth with a pair of forceps, and at the same time, forcing both elbows into his ribs. Dillinger gasped and resumed breathing. The procedure with only a local... Or the, excuse me, the procedure continued with only a local anesthetic. Lozer removed several moles on Dillinger's forehead, made an incision in his big nose, and an incision in his chin, and tied back both cheeks. Lozer met with Pickett again on Saturday, June 2nd, with him saying that more work was needed on Dillinger, and now Vaymeter now wanted the same work done to him. Also, both now wanted work done on their fingertips. The price for the fingerprint procedure would be $500 per hand, or $100 a finger. Lozer used a mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acid. Lozer met O'Leary the following night at Clark and Wright at 8.30, and they once again drove to Probasco's. Present this evening were Dillinger, Van Meter, Probasco, Pickett, Cassidy, and Peggy Doyle, Probasco's girlfriend. Lozer testified that he worked for only about 30 minutes before O'Leary and Pickett had left. Minor work was done two nights later, Tuesday, June 5th. Lozer made some small corrections, first on Van Meter, then Dillinger. O'Leary stated that Dillinger expressed dissatisfaction with the facial work that Lozer had performed on him. O'Leary said that on another occasion, that Probasco told him, the son of the bitch has gone out for one of his walks that he did not know when he would return. That Probasco raved about the craziness of Dillinger, stating that he was always going for walks and was likely to cause the authorities to locate the place where he was staying. That Probasco stated frankly on this occasion that he was afraid to have the man around. Agents arrested Lozer at 11:27 South Harvey, Oak Park, Illinois, Tuesday, July 24th. O'Leary returned from a family fishing trip on July 24th, the day of Lozer's arrest, and had read in newspapers that the Department of Justice was looking for two doctors and another man in connection with some plastic work that was done on Dillinger. O'Leary left Chicago immediately, but returned two weeks later, and learned that Lozer and others had been arrested. He phoned Pickett, who assured him everything was all right, then left again. He returned from St. Louis on August 25th and was promptly taken into custody. On Friday, July 27th, Probasco fell to his death from the 19th floor of the Bankers Building in Chicago while in custody. On Thursday, August 23rd, Homer Van Meter was shot and killed in a dead-end alley in St. Paul by Tom Brown, former St. Paul Chief of Police and then current Chief Frank Cullen. You would think by now that Dillinger, if he's seeing all his friends getting arrested and killed, that his time is coming to an end. And if I were him, honestly, I would try to get the hell out of Chicago. And you know what? Even the hell out of the U.S. Go someplace and just stay quiet and just hide out for the rest of your life. And now we're going to dive into the beginning of the end. For John Dillinger. Division of Investigations Chief J. Edgar Hoover created a special task force headquartered in Chicago to locate Dillinger. On July 21st, once again, I really can't say her last name, so I'm just going to call her Anna C., a madam from a brothel in Gary, Indiana, also known as the Woman in Red, contacted the FBI. 
She was a Romanian immigrant threatened with deport, uh, deportation for a low moral character and offered agents information on Dillinger in exchange for their help in preventing her, her deportation. The FBI agreed to her terms, but she was later deported nonetheless. She revealed that Dillinger was spending his time with another prostitute, Polly Hamilton, and that she and the couple were going to see a movie together on the following day. She agreed to wear an orange dress so police could easily identify her. She was unsure which of the two theaters they would attend, the Biograph or the Marlboro. On December 15th, 1934, Pardons were issued by Indiana Governor Harry Leslie for the offenses of which Anna C. was convicted. Anna stated that on Sunday afternoon, July 22nd, Dillinger asked her whether she wanted to go to the show with them, being Pauline. Him. A team of federal agents and officers from police forces from outside of Chicago was formed, along with a very small number of Chicago police officers. Among them was Sergeant Martin Zarkovich the officer to whom Anna had acted as an informant. At the time, federal officers felt that the Chicago police had been compromised and therefore could not be trusted. Of course, in reality, Hoover and Purvis wanted more of the credit. Not wanting to take the risk of another embarrassing escape of Dillinger, the police were split into the two groups. On Sunday, one team was sent to the Marlboro Theater and another team surrounded the Biograph Theater on the north side of Chicago. At approximately 8.30 p.m., Sage, Hamilton, and Dillinger were observed entering the Biograph Theater, which was showing the crime drama Manhattan Melodrama, starring Clark Gable and William Powell. During the stakeout, the Biograph's manager thought the agents were criminals setting up a robbery. He called the Chicago police, who dutifully responded and had to be waved off by the federal agents, who told them, they were on a stakeout for an important target. When the film ended, Purvis stood by the front door and signaled Dillinger's exit by lighting a cigar. Both he and the other agents reported that Dillinger turned his head and looked directly at the agent as he walked by, glanced across the street, then moved ahead of his female companions, reached into his pocket, but failed to extract his gun, and ran into a nearby alley. Other accounts stated Dillinger ignored a command to surrender, whipped out his gun, then headed for the alley. Agents already had the alley closed off. Three men pursued Dillinger into the alley and fired. Clarence Hurt shot twice, Charles Winstead three times, Herman Hollis once. Dillinger was hit from behind and fell face first to the ground. Dillinger was struck four times with two bullets grazing him and one causing a superficial wound to the right side. A fatal bullet entered through the back of his neck, severed the spinal cord, passed into his brain, and exited just under the right eye, severing two sets of veins and arteries. An ambulance was summoned, although it was soon apparent Dillinger had died from the gunshot wounds. He was officially pronounced dead at Alexian Brothers Hospital. According to investigators, Dillinger died without saying a word. Winston was later thought to have fired the, final, the fatal shot, I should say, and as a consequence, received a personal letter of commendation from J. Edgar Hoover. Dillinger was shot and killed by the special agents on July 22, 1934, at approximately 10.40 p.m. Dillinger's death came only two months after the deaths of fellow notorious criminals, Bonnie and Clyde. There were reports of people dipping their handkerchiefs and skirts into the pool of blood that had formed, 
as the Dillinger lay in the alleys. As keepsakes, souvenir hunters madly dipped newspapers on the blood that had stained the pavement. Handkerchiefs were whipped out and used to mop up, mop up the blood. Dillinger's body was available for public display at the Cook County Morgue. An estimated 15,000 people viewed the corpse over a day and a half. As many as four death masks were also made. Dillinger is buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. Dillinger's gravestone had been replaced several times because of vandalism by people chipping off pieces as souvenirs. Dalton Crouch, an associate of Dillinger's on some early heist, is buried only a few yards to the west. So I leave you with this. What are your thoughts on John Dillinger? Let us know in the comments what you thought about this episode. Is there any gangsters and mobsters you want us to um, create an episode around? Let us know. And like we said, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. And as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will see you next You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.